And Mitchell has one sermon left in his series on 1 Peter, which he is going to finish next week. And then after that, we're going to be spending the rest of the summer in the Psalms. And so this morning, I thought I would give you all a little taste of that. This will be like that sample of ice cream you get at Hattie Jane's before enjoying the whole cone. We're going to be looking at Psalm 124 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. And this psalm, as we will read in a moment, is a song of ascents. And the songs of ascents were a group of 15 psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, that ancient Israelites would sing as they journeyed up to Jerusalem for the annual feast that would take place there three times a year. Now, it's often Christians will approach psalms as individual prayers, and it's not inappropriate for us to do so. Um, We can appropriate them as prayers for ourselves. But as we just said, this is a a song. And it's a song that's meant to be sung corporately. We see that in the psalm itself. In verse 1, we see that there would have been a person leading the singing that starts in, and then he invites everybody to join. He says, everybody now. And if you humor me, We're going to try to replicate something of that this morning. We're going to do our scripture reading corporately. So if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. The verses should be on the PowerPoint. What's going to happen is I'm going to read verse 1, and then everyone else will come in at verse 2 after let Israel now say. Think we can do that? I believe in you. Let's do it. This is Psalm 124, a song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not only spoken to us in your word, we thank you that you have given us words to speak to one another. Pray that as we come to this word this morning, that your be at work in us, nourish faith to trust you and to love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was in seminary, At the beginning of every semester, I would have a little freak out, we'll we'll call it. As I received all the syllabi and saw all of the reading that I would have to do and all of the papers that I would have to write, I would get a little overwhelmed and I would say, there is just no way that I am going to get through this semester. My wife, Hannah, being the the wonderful woman that she is, uh, tried to be sympathetic with my little freak outs, but she eventually lost patience with them. She would tell me, Weston, you said the exact same thing last semester, and you ended up doing fine. And I would respond, yeah, but this semester is different. (laughs) 
And that may have been true to an extent. Each semester brought new professors, new classes, and new challenges, and sometimes one semester was in fact more difficult than the one before. But what Hannah was pointing out to me is that I had a pretty bad memory. I needed to remember that though this new semester was in fact different, the feeling of over being overwhelmed was not. That is something that I experienced every semester, and every semester the Lord preserved me through it. And it's because of experiences like those that I'm both encouraged and challenged when I come to the Bible and find similar stories with God's people, like the one in Exodus 16. Now, just to give you a little bit of context, in Exodus 14, God saves his people from the oncoming Egyptian army by dividing the Red Sea so that the people could walk across on dry land. In Exodus 15, Moses then leads the people in a song praising God for his salvation. But then we get to the beginning of Exodus 16, and God gets a little bit hungry, and they start saying, God must have brought us out into the desert to die. They pretty quickly forgot what God had done for them. Do you see this pattern in your own life? Whenever we face new challenges, new threats, a new opposition in life, we can quickly forget what God has done and lose our faith in him. In the face of those new challenges and threats and oppositions, we may think that what we need is new resources or new strategies. We need to read a book or an article or talk to a professional. And none of those things are bad, but what we really need is to remember we need to remember that though the conditions that we are facing may be new, the condition of being in distress is not. It is something that God's people have experienced many times before. And Psalm 124 recalls one of those times for us. And we're told in the heading of the psalm that it was written by David, and sometimes we're given information regarding the specific instance in which David wrote a particular psalm. For example, when he's on the run from his son Absalom, or when he's fleeing from Saul, or after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. But we're not given any of that information here, so we don't know exactly what David had in mind when he wrote this psalm. All we can infer is that enemies of some sort were assailing God's people. But the lack of details is okay, because as the author Eugene Peterson says about this psalm, the hazards are not the subject of this psalm, but only its setting. The point is not the exact conditions of the crisis. The point is that God's people have been in dire situations in the past, and the Lord has been faithful to preserve them through it. This psalm is a little bit like my wife reminding me, hey, you've been here before. And it's meant to nurture and strengthen our faith by helping us to remember who God has shown himself to be during those times. And so as we look at Psalm 124 this morning, we're going to receive help in remembering that we have a God who's on our side, a God who saves, and a God who is sovereign. So first, we see that we have a God who's on our side. This psalm opens with a very long if-then statement. And the if part of that statement is given in verse 1. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, and then the psalm really seeks to drive this point home. It wants everybody to make these words their own. And so as we already saw, 
the, the leader of this psalm invites everyone to join in. And it repeats that line again, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Now, even though it's clothed in a hypothetical negation, if it had not been, we shouldn't miss the clear statement of verses one and two. And that is that the Lord is on our side. In other words, the Lord is for us, not against us. And that is true even when God's people are experiencing dire distress. In verses three through five, we're given the then part of the if-then statement. And these verses use some very vivid imagery to give us a glimpse of what God's people were facing. In verse three, it says that they could have been swallowed up alive. This is the language of a large beast gulping down its prey. When I read this, it reminded me of the scene from the original Jurassic Park movie where the T-Rex busts in on the guy in the bathroom and then, well, you know the rest. Verses four and five speak of waters that are rising and rushing and threatening to drown God's people and sweep them away. So maybe you can imagine going whitewater rafting and falling out of the raft in class five rapids, and you try to keep your head above water, but they keep pushing you down as the currents come. Or if you've ever been caught in a riptide at the beach and gotten dragged farther and farther out to sea, no matter how hard you swam, that's the sense of danger that David is describing here. So suffice it to say that God's people were facing some pretty overwhelming circumstances. It seemed like they were going to be completely undone, completely wiped out, except that the Lord was on their side. And what these verses help us to remember is that we can't judge whether the Lord is on our side based on our present circumstances. That's what we're prone to do, especially as Americans. In our prosperity, we can subtly slip into believing a prosperity gospel. When things are going well, when, when nothing major is troubling us, it seems so clear that God is on our side, and we start to believe that prosperous circumstances are the mark of God being on our side. And inversely, we believe that when trouble comes our way, it means that God must not be on our side. He's not for us, he's against us. When I was in seminary, I also volunteered at this nursing home in the inner city. And sadly, this was a place that was rock bottom for a lot of its residents. It's where they landed when they couldn't afford anywhere else and their families could no longer take care of them. And I remember having a lot of conversations with residents at that nursing home who would look around at their situations and conclude that God must be punishing them for something. Have you ever felt that way? Well, let me assure you that that is how karma works, but not Christianity. And in fact, this is exactly the mistake that Job's friends made in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with the story of Job, he was a prosperous man whom God allowed Satan to attack. And so his possessions were either stolen by marauders or wiped out in a natural disaster. All of his children were killed by a terrorist attack. And then he caught a disease that led to his whole body being covered in painful sores. And Job's friends came and sat with him for seven days. And that's about all they did right. Because afterwards, they started to accuse him, saying that he must have done something wrong to get on God's bad side. If God was on his side, then he wouldn't be in that situation. But at the end of the book of Job, 
God finally speaks, and he rebukes Job's friends for speaking falsely about him. And so the book of Job also reaffirms for us that just because we are facing difficulties and dangers and distress, it doesn't mean that the Lord is not on our side. And in fact, the Bible is is pretty clear that we as God's people should expect such things. As Mitchell preached a few weeks ago, the Apostle Peter tells us that we shouldn't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us to test us as though something strange were happening to us. Jesus himself said at the the end of John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. Okay, but if we can't judge based on our circumstances, how can we know that the Lord is in fact on our side? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us how in Romans 8, verses 31 and 32, he first poses this question, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then what evidence does he give that God is for us? In the very next verse, he says that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Our ultimate assurance that God really is for us is the fact that Jesus gave up his life, allowing himself to be swallowed up by God's anger for sin. And so Jesus turns the question on its head. As Abraham Lincoln once said, the question is not whether the Lord is on our side. The question is whether we are on the Lord's side. The question is whether we are going to trust him when life goes wrong and the world seems against us. Because of Jesus, we can be sure that if our faith is in the Lord, then no matter what we are facing, the Lord is on our side. And when God is on our side, he also shows himself to be a God who saves. That's our second point this morning. So after describing what could have happened had the Lord not been on their side, David describes what actually did happen in verses 6 and 7. And what did happen is that God saved his people from whatever was threatening them. And again, David, as a great poet, uses some pretty vivid imagery to portray God's rescue. In verse 6, he says that God did not give us as prey to their teeth. This is similar, but it is slightly different imagery than the swallowing beast of verse 3. This is the image of being saved from the teeth of a predator who already has its teeth around its prey. A few years ago, there was a YouTube video that went viral called The Battle of Kruger. This was an amazing eight-minute video that was captured Um, on someone's camera in Kruger National Park in South Africa. And in this video, there is a pride of lions that attack a baby water buffalo. So they jump on this water buffalo and they drag it down into the water. And as they are sinking their teeth into this baby buffalo, a crocodile comes out of the water and also latches on to the buffalo. And so the crocodile and the lions start playing tug of war with the baby water buffalo, trying to tear it away from the other. And eventually, the pride of lion wins out. And so they drag the water buffalo back onto shore and the crocodile recedes into the water. And at this point, you're only halfway into the video, but you're thinking, okay, the battle of Kruger must be over, right? But then the camera zooms out. And it shows the herd of water buffalo charging back towards the pride of lions. And they start ramming the lions and throwing them up into the air. And this baby water buffalo 
that had been in the teeth of two different predators was saved. David is saying, that's what God has done for his people. But then he keeps going in verse 7. He says that they were like a bird escaped from the snare of the fowler. Now, it's pretty easy for us to get a general idea of what he's saying here, but we can miss just how amazing this is if we don't fully understand the reference. In the ancient Near East, hunters would throw large nets over birds to capture them. And so David is comparing God's people to a bird who is already trapped in the net. There is nothing that they can do to save themselves. They were surely done for, but then it was like the net was cut, allowing them to escape. The Lord saved them. Now, as we said earlier, we don't know exactly what event in the life of God's people David is referring to here. Scholars debate a number of different options, but the fact that we have options shows us that God is in the business of rescuing his people. This is who he is. This is what he does. He is a God who saves. And as people in the Bible Belt, whenever we hear about God saving, we have a tendency to spiritualize that. We think of God's salvation in terms of Jesus dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And that is true. God's salvation ultimately comes to us in Jesus who saves us from our sin and their wages, death. But the love of God that is shown to us in Jesus is not only concerned with saving us from the dangers of hell. It is also concerned with saving us from the dangers of this world. The Apostle Paul recounts his own experiences of this in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 10. He says, we don't want you to be unaware of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. We also sing of this truth in the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far. God saves us from the dangers of this world. But I know that that assertion may raise some questions for you. Because you may look around the world and see God's people being persecuted. Or you may, may have experienced tragedies in your own life where God didn't save someone from the dangers of this world. I've experienced that myself. So it needs to be said that it is true that God does not always save his people from the dangers of this world. And that is because God's salvation is something that we experience truly, though not yet fully, in this life. The fullness of our salvation is yet to come, but it is coming. And there are other parts of the Bible that speak to that. But that's not what Psalm 124 is about. Psalm 124 is recounting how God has saved his people when they were in distress. And if we went around this room, I'm sure that many of us, or maybe all of us, could share stories of how God saved us from what could have happened in our lives. And we need to remember those stories. We need to remember those stories where it seemed like life was dark and things were hopeless, but God met us in the midst of that. He held us with his mighty hand and he brought us safely through. 
We need to remember those stories because it helps us to rejoice in the Lord. Notice in verse 6 that David starts out by saying, Blessed be the Lord. Recounting this story of salvation leads David to praise. And so remembering our own stories deepens our faith so that we can be confident in the Lord's salvation when we meet new trials and new difficulties and new dangers. But we not only need to remember our own stories, we need to recount those stories to others. Again, this is not an individual prayer. This is a corporate song. This is meant to be something that God's people sing together. As we said in our call to worship, this is meant to be a way that God's people address one another. And you can imagine an ancient Israelite traveling up to Jerusalem whose faith might have been flagging. He might have felt like God was not on his side. But think about how it would have emboldened his heart to hear his brothers and his sisters singing of God's salvation. That person's doubts and fears would have been answered by the testimony of those reciting with praise how God had rescued them. We need that same thing from one another. Whenever we are doubting and fearful, our faith needs to be nurtured by hearing others recount their stories of a God who saves. We need to hear those stories from others, but we also need to share our own stories of God's salvation. And I know we can be hesitant to do this. We might be afraid of sharing times in our lives where we felt really vulnerable. Or we might just be afraid of coming off too spiritual. Right? You don't want to ruin a good story by bringing God into it. But despite whatever reservations we have, we need this from one another. And this psalm is an invitation to proclaim to each other that we have a God who saves And so if you have a group of Christians that you meet with regularly, maybe you could take some time, sometime soon, to share with one another stories of God's rescue in your lives. Or this could be something that you do with your kids. I remember when I was growing up, one of the stories that I often heard from my parents was how shortly after they were married, they amazingly survived this very serious car accident. They walked away with nothing but a few bruises. And as a kid, that made God seem much more real to me because I had heard how God had preserved the life of my parents. Well, God can become more real to all of us when we remember our stories of God's salvation and recount those stories to one another. Okay, so this psalm helps us to remember that we have a God who's on our side, a God who saves, and finally, a God who is sovereign. The last verse of this psalm says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this verse is nearly identical to one that we encounter in the Psalms just three chapters prior. And the fact that this this truth gets repeated in such close proximity, proximity means that it's obviously something that we need to internalize. The great reformer John Calvin thought this verse was so important that he started all of his worship services in Geneva with this verse. He believed it gave a foundational understanding of the Christian faith. And this verse does encapsulate what we've already said. It says that God is our help. He is the one who saves us and preserves us. And it says that our help is in the name of the Lord. And that wording is significant because the name of the Lord was God's covenantal name 
which he revealed to his people as part of his promise to be with them and for them. But then it goes one step further. It calls to mind the fact that the Lord is the one who created all things, whether heaven or on earth. Now, whenever the Bible speaks of God as the creator of all things, it's not making a philosophical statement that he is the origin point of the universe, though that is true. No, it's saying that he is the ruler of all things. He is the sovereign God. And his sovereignty means a couple of things. First, his sovereignty means that there is nothing in all of creation that is more powerful than him. This is what the psalm celebrates in verses 2 through 5. It uses this imagery of an engulfing beast and raging waters because those things are powerful. Those dangers are so powerful that it seems like nothing could thwart them except the Lord who is on our side. God's sovereignty also means that there is nothing in all of creation that is outside of his power. This is what we see in verses 6 and 7. Even when God's people were in the teeth of a predator or the snare of a fowler, they are not too far gone. They are never outside of God's reach. He is still working even then to bring about his salvation for his people. And God's sovereignty is good news for us when we face new trials because it means that God can help us against every enemy and in every situation. If God were not sovereign, then he may have been able to help us in the past, but that doesn't mean he could help us now. Because if he were not sovereign, whatever we are encountering now may be more powerful than him or or outside of his control. Think if you called your buddy who had fixed that leak in your faucet to come fix the leak in your refrigerator. Even though he had helped you in a similar situation before, he may not be able to help you now. Why? Because appliances are probably above his pay grade. Or kids, your parents may be able to help you with your math homework when you're in elementary school, but they may not be able to help you when you get to pre-cal in high school. Why? Because that's now outside their sphere of sovereignty. But that is never the case with God. He is the one who made heaven and earth, and so he is able to help with everything in heaven and earth. And remembering how God has worked in the past makes his sovereignty clearer to us. Oftentimes, God's sovereignty is something that can only be seen in hindsight. When life feels overwhelming or out of control, it doesn't seem like God is sovereign. It seems like he's either not on our side and thus not willing to save us, or he's not sovereign and thus not able to save us. This is the problem that Rabbi Harold Kushner posed several years ago in his best-selling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Do you know what his conclusion was? He rightly said that God is on the side of his people, and thus, God must not be sovereign. But when we look back on what God has done in the past, we can see with a little more clarity that God is truly sovereign. Because only a sovereign God would be able to save his people from an engulfing beast, or raging waters. Only a sovereign God could save his people from the teeth of the predators or the the snare of the fowlers. And in God's sovereignty, he works his salvation at unexpected times and in unexpected ways. And when we look back, we begin to see that. We begin to see how God really does work out all things for the good of his people. 
And do you know that where that is ultimately demonstrated for us? In the cross of Christ. I want you to imagine what it was like for Jesus' disciples when they saw him being crucified. These were people that had believed that Jesus was the Christ. They had set their hopes on him as the one who would defeat all of their enemies and impose God's reign upon the earth. But in that moment, when they watched Jesus being crucified, all they saw was Jesus and their hopes being swallowed up and swept away by the Roman Empire. And in that moment, what they couldn't see is that in God's sovereignty, that was the time and that was the way that he was bringing salvation for his people. Remembering how God has worked in the past, especially in the cross of Christ, helps us to hold on to his sovereignty, even when it's not apparent to us. So during my little freakouts in seminary, when my wife was reminding me that I had been there before, she was also telling me that it was going to be okay. What she was doing is she was bringing the past into the present. And this is also what David does for us in this psalm. If you would look at the last verse with me just one more time, did you notice the change in tenses? Everything in this psalm is in the past tense. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, the Lord has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped. But then in verse 8, it switches to the present tense. It says, our help is in the name of the Lord. It's saying that God has been been on our side. He has saved us. He has shown his sovereignty. And he will continue to do so. He will continue to do so until we are finally saved from every threat of this world. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Remembering helps us to truly believe that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we are so quick to forget. We are so quick to forget who you are and what you have done. And so we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you have worked salvation in our lives, but we also thank you that you bring those stories of salvation to mind. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, those stories would be rooted deeply in our minds and hearts, that we might trust you as we walk through all of the dangers and toils and snares of this life. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Lord, may that be our constant refrain. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.